Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Um, interesting podcast we have today. I'm here with Fraxan Baroness, who, as most folks know, over the last week or two has been running into issues on the family ranch um, with Chevron, with leaking wells. I'm going to let her tell her story. She's also, in effect, docs to all of us. And so I'm going to call her by her real name, Ashley Watt. And uh, Ashley, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you do this? I think most folks that will listen to this podcast will know what's going on because they've been following it on Twitter. But maybe for the the few folks that haven't, can you kind of set up what's going on uh, with you right now and and what you've been tweeting about? Yeah. So um, I'm a... a major landowner in the Permian Basin as well as up in the Panhandle. Um, and we're, we're ranchers by trade, but I always say that, you know, to be a rancher in the Permian Basin, like you are part of the oil and gas industry. Um, you're essentially the, the landlord of the oil and gas industry, so to speak. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I don't have any formal oil and gas training, but I've been around it long enough. My dad was a, um, oil and gas attorney out of Houston. And so I, I've, I've grown up around the industry. I'm knowledgeable in it. You know, clearly we've, we've done some stuff in frac sand. Um, and so I, I do consider myself part of the industry. Um, what has happened over the, the last week is a literal and metaphorical bubbling to the surface of a whole lot of issues. Um, on the, on the literal side, it's a, it's a little simpler. Um, I've been referring to it as a blowout, and I know I know there's a couple of people giving me shit because it's you know aggressive garden hose, um, but it it would actually be better if it was a blowout. I I would be happier if this was a big, you know, fire breathing monster because big fire breathing monsters are easy to see and and get attention and and can be fixed and then you know kind of the battle's done. This is this is in a way it's it's way more evil what's going on and, and way worse. It's it's insidious. It's um. What, what we think is happening, kind of the hypothesis, and we had this before this well even came to the surface, is something has overpressurized some subsurface zone, uh, and it is destroying well casings uh, on our ranch. There's been um, PNAs that have started oozing crude. There's been active wells that have had casing collapses. Like, uh, so many wells are showing pressure on the backside of the casing, like, something is going on. And so we kind of thought this, um, and in a way this thing was completely ironic timing because, um, we'd been complaining to Chevron about this and, and some other issues. They've, they've just been awful operators and dump shit everywhere and, um, had been complaining to them for months. Um, and then they, they shut up on us and just stopped answering in late March. And what it turns out is, you know, rather than deal with these complaints, they just sold the field out from, from under us to a new operator. Uh, without even telling us or the the courtesy to to do anything, so we had already sent them, you know, lawyered up, sent them a litigation hold. I figured I was going to end up suing Chevron to clean up the ranch, but um, I didn't I didn't realize exactly the extent of the problem at that point. And so Chevron had sent out um, two folks um, 
early last week, probably around Monday. Hey, Ashley, let me cut you off just real quick and and maybe step back just a second. And this can all be ballpark. It doesn't have to be precise, but just ballpark. When did Chevron drill the field on your ranch? Ballpark, how many wells are there? How long have you guys owned the ranch? When did you first notice problems? Yeah, so this um, we have four divisions. We call this the Antina Main Side Division. As you can tell, it's kind of it's our main portion. My my house is here. Um, Chevron. It, it's actually an interesting lease because Chevron is the original lessee through Gulf Oil, and the lease is a 1924 lease, and it is still in effect. Um, most of the wells are probably. 40s, 50s, 60s vintage. I I do not remember a new well being drilled in my lifetime, and um, I'm a fourth generation Permian uh, landowner. Um, but this is not the ancestral family land. We acquired this relatively recently in about '94 or so. So we've owned this land since '94. Um, we don't have the minerals. We've never had the minerals. We are just the surface owners. Have you been ranching with the land? I'm, absolutely. Just um, we're we're a cow calf operation. Essentially, we're the first leg of the American beef industry. Um, our cattle are, they're domesticated, but they're basically semi-wild. Most of them were born on that ranch. They, um, you know, they're in relatively large pastures of 2,000, 3,000 acres. Um, they raise their calves there. And then once the calves are weaned, we ship them off to market to get fattened out and then turn into beef. In terms of catching you back up where I, where I cut you off, has there kind of been historical animosity with Chevron over this, or is this a relatively new phenomenon? Yes, there is definitely historic animosity um, out of our out of our water well system, and we have about nine water wells. Uh, we have one called the Chevron well, we have one called the new well, and then we have two called the new Chevron wells. And each one of those has been drilled on a previous time that Chevron has um, screwed up a water source. So... Um, you know, we've we've had problems with them for years, and generally they have treated us, you know, as most operators would. That the landowner is a is a headache to be solved, not a um, you know partner in production or anything. Why don't you jump back to to your story from where I cut you off? But I just thought that yeah. might be helpful in terms of setting the stage of what's going on. Yeah, and um, so last Monday, Chevron um, after we'd basically threatened to sue them to clean up some other old spills and, and stuff um, that was much smaller than than what we've had erupt this week. They sent out two folks. They kind of said, okay, let's let's start talking about cleaning some stuff up, you know, and, and moving forward. And then literally three days later, um, the new pumper calls us and says, hey, there's something bubbling up. Um, I'm trying to contain it, you know, get a backhoe down here. It's starting to flow. And it was um, essentially our pasture is starting to turn into a, a marsh um, of this brine water coming to the surface. The The scary part is this this brine water that's super corrosive, you know, you hear just water, um, it is absolutely loaded with salt. And in a way, it would be better if it was crude oil, because crude, if you dumped it everywhere, yes, it's very nasty. Yes, it's it's got some dangerous stuff in it. But over time, crude will actually biodegrade. Bacteria will eat it. It'll evaporate. You know, there's there's still stuff to clean up, and you still have to make sure nothing gets down in your water table before it biodegrades. But it, it kind of takes care of itself over time. Salt is actually the worst thing you can spill because 
it's permanent. It, it will never go anywhere for eternity. Like, you know, you can go back into the Bible and when, when they really hated someone, they would salt their fields because they're permanently useless. So salt is actually, um, from a spill perspective, um, what really scares me on a, on a long-term basis. Um, certainly the, you know, the benzene and the chemicals in there are scary in another way. And I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but, um, the pits pumper had called us and told us it was bubbling to the surface. We called Chevron and said, Hey, you've got a PNA that's, that's coming up. You need to come fix it. And they told us, Hey, I'll, we'll, we'll get to it in a week or two. Like, don't worry. And so after jumping up and down and screaming for a couple days and, and yelling at the railroad commission, Chevron finally sent somebody out on Saturday. They put the, um, the, the now famous red bucket on top of it. Um, and, and at that point figured out that this is more than just a little leak. This is something structurally unsound underneath and called out, um, cud well control by Sunday. Is it just one well that's leaking? Are there multiple wells that are, that are leaking and, you know, have, have there been tests on the water to know exactly what's in the water and aside from, uh, from salt? Right now we know of two plugged and abandoned wells that have bubbled to the surface. And, you know, I think, I think those are most concerning because, you know, when you plug and abandon a well, you're done with all liability. You know, it's, it's off your books. It, it basically ceases to exist for, you know, regulatory standards. Um, so for PNA wells to become un-PNA'd, um, I know that's a rare occurrence, but especially for two of them on the same ranch, um, that's extremely concerning. Uh, and we, we don't have any, we're really not in like an active drilling zone. Um, I don't know of anyone drilling, you know, modern horizontal wells anywhere around us. I don't remember a well being drilled on this ranch in the last 30 years. Um, so it's it's it would actually be a little less concerning if it was like, there was a big horizontal well nearby and there was a frack hit and it busted a PNA because it'd be like, okay, you know, hey, that's bad, but I get it. This is concerning because something is literally eating these wells apart underneath the surface. This division, the main side division, is approximately 22,000 acres. Um, and I don't have the exact numbers for you, but I would estimate it has probably 400 well bores across it. Um, you know, a mix of active, temporarily abandoned, plugged and abandoned. Um, so there's, there's a ton of well bores. And so if, if something is destroying those well bores from the bottom up, um, it's not a, at this, and at this point we're confident that is the answer. It's not a matter of if there will be any more plugged wells coming to the surface, working their way through the water table, et cetera. It's, it's a matter of when like this, this whole ranch is a, a ticking time bomb and, and it's not like it stops at our fence line. It's going to be, it's going to extend to wherever this overpressured zone underground, which the um, we're still, there's some guesses around there and, and people are speculating over what it is. And, and I'll leave that to the geologists that are smarter than me, but this, this zone is definitely going to be pressing up on other wells, on neighbors and elsewhere in, in the Permian basin. Yeah, no, it sounds systemic. I mean, you have one, you have one bad PNA well. All right, you know, twenty-five years ago when the person was pumping the job, they screwed up. They were hungover or whatever. You get, you get two. You get into three. You get into four. And we've had a number of um, active wells um, that have had casing collapses. 
like there was one in in December. I got a call. Hey, we've had a well. The casing collapsed. You know, we're working on it. Um, and that well, that that well, it's the Estes 101. It actually, it really got this going uh, and escalating to a new level of of animosity because I asked them for the spill report and they said, well, it just spilled water. It's not a problem. And I said, well, you know, produced water and and fresh water are not the same thing. Um, I need to see a spill report. And they said, well, it's produced water, but it was only 30 barrels, so we don't have to make a report, and we're not going to report it. And at the time, I I thought they had just kind of turned some trucks around in the pasture. There were some torn up pieces of the pasture. But then as the spring went on and the mesquites started to, to leaf out and come into bloom, everything that that water touched off that pad site is deader than a doornail, like acres of pasture. Um, in Chevron, you know, when I started, this is what I was complaining to them about in the spring. And when I started asking them, Hey, you got to come look at this and you got to fix it. That's when they sold the, the whole field out from underneath us rather than deal with it. So there's, and there's two interpretations of that. One is, Hey, they were just looking to sell the field and I happen to be complaining and it's, it's coincidence. The other one is, you know, this was a, a dog of a field. Chevron hasn't made any money on it probably since the eighties. Um, and rather than have to deal with it, they just dump it off on a local operator and say, hey, you know, we're, we're done with this. The only reason Chevron, I think, even still had this field, you know, given it's a 1924 Gulf Oil lease, is I think they were sitting there kind of crossing their fingers and hoping that a new Wolf Camp bench or something was discovered underneath it. Um, and they would have to still have the lease in effect. But, um, you know, geology-wise, it's, it's boring. It's Central Basin Platform. It's vertical wells. It's old stuff. It's not sexy. Was it a water flood? Do we have potentially water flood operations going where they're pumping stuff in, or are these just old producing wells still on depletion? Yeah, it's it's got it's got some water flood and it's got uh, saltwater disposal. Um, you know, some of the zones I know I know the Guadiana is being produced, uh, the San Andres. Um, again, I'm not a geologist, so I I don't even know all these. Right. Um, I know it's a very water-heavy field, and then there has also been a recent proliferation of uh, water injection wells and water being brought in from um, off-site elsewhere. We don't have any on us, but our neighbors do. You know, they're trucking in water from the Delaware, wherever, injecting it there. And I think I think over the years, between local produ- production reinjecting their water, new water disposal wells coming on site. I, and no coordination between any of these groups or people. I think we have literally just overpressurized the living shit out of some reservoir with super briny water that's already pretty sulfurous. It's a pretty sour field, and that is just a absolute recipe for eating steel and concrete to pieces. And that's why we're getting these plugs that are deteriorating way before they ever should have. Right. Now... I was reading somewhere, and I think it was something that that you tweeted out. Is Chevron required to test the groundwater, and what did that, what did the their program look like, and what did the results uh, show off of that? That is a story from 2002, and we were out here, um, and someone flushed a toilet. And when new water came in, it was um, there was crude in in the water when we flushed the toilet. So obviously that's, you know, big, a high profile. Okay, what's going on? Um, Railroad Commission comes out. We, we go to the water well that we were using for the house, which is about a quarter mile from um, 
the Estes 24 blowout that I've been sending most of the pictures from. Start testing around there. Railroad Commission starts testing around there. Um, they find a big plume of crude under underground in the water supply, and they find a big plume of brine of saltwater underground in the water supply. The the really concerning part about that story is they never quite figured out the source. Uh, it was close to a um, Chevron well, and I'm not sure if it was active or plugged at that point. I believe it's plugged now. Um, and then it was also close to a old Plains four-inch steel pipeline, um, which at this point is like sitting on the surface. And so Plains and Chevron um, jointly took responsibility for that spill. I think Plains took the crude side and Chevron took the brine side and entered into the Railroad Commission um, operator cleanup program. And as a condition of that, they had to they shut in that well. That was when one of the Chevron wells got drilled. Uh, one of the Chevron water wells got drilled that they that they have drilled for us over time. They drilled a number of monitoring wells around it, and they're required to test it. Uh, I can't remember if it's semi-annually or annually, and provide a a written report. Plains has done that. I still get a report from them every year. Um, there's still contaminants there, but we we kind of know where they are and 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 have a good handle on them. Chevron. I'm going to be honest, I didn't realize they were supposed to be doing this until we really started looking into it because they had just stopped giving me a report. And we did an, a Railroad Commission open records request, and sure enough, there's correspondence between the Railroad Commission and Chevron, and the Railroad Commission's basically saying, like, hey, we haven't gotten this report in eight years. Like, you're supposed to be filing an annual groundwater report. Where is it? Um, and so I, I think Chevron absolutely just screwed this one up. And I don't know if they forgot to, to keep testing or just didn't want to keep testing. So we've had water issues with Chevron. Like this is, and this is what I was getting at that that this well is, has bubbled to the surface. But but the damage wasn't done, you know, last week. The damage was done over the past 25 years. Both the damage to the relationship between Chevron and us, and the damage to this PNA well bore, which is now open. And you don't out out on the ranch. You don't have access to another water source other than drilling uh drilling a water well correct correct there's to my knowledge not a potable water pipeline within 20 miles i, I think monahans is probably our closest potable water source and that would be a 20 mile pipeline like that's just not feasible um so we only have our surface water on site and our our water we're in the you know as you can tell by the twitter handle we're in the deep sand hills and so our water is in those sand hills and it sits at about 53 feet of depth so it's an extremely shallow aquifer, and you know the sand's permeable. So it's it's like a sandcastle at the beach. Anything you pour in it and pour on that sand is going to filter its way down. So that's that's the concern. If there's a crude spill or something like, you know, that crude will eventually biodegrade. But before it does, it's definitely going to make it south 53 feet and get in the water. Um, but that is our only water. There's there is no other option. And even the this division itself is shaped. It's shaped kind of like an hourglass. And the northern half is deep sand, big sand hills, what you'd imagine. And the southern half is, uh, it's down towards kind of the Pecos River, and it gets much more rockier, scrubbier, greasewood, um, kind of more of a trans-Pecos type biome. And there's really not a great water table down under that trans-Pecos biome. And so the northern half of the ranch, and the water underneath those sand hills feeds not only the, the land right around it in its immediate area, but then is piped five to 10 miles south across the ranch and feeds the southern half of the ranch. 
So if we lose our aquifers in the Sandhills, like the ranch is is less than worthless. It is it is a liability at that point. It is absolutely useless for um, habitation, for cattle raising, for anything. It it is just a a piece of dirt that's worthless. Yeah, and I mean that that was going to be my my question is I mean the aquifer is like a pool. You can't just pee in one corner of it and not have the pee go everywhere. I hate to be crass, but exactly. And and it's not you know our water wells there aren't huge gushers like you get on you know the Ogallala up in the Panhandle. Like these are these are wells that are um, the water wells are much like the oil wells. Like they are just kind of scraping by and giving you enough to work with. Like there is physically not a ton of water so if you if you pollute anything into it it's not going to get diluted and work its way across this giant subterranean ocean like it will not take much to screw up that entire aquifer tell me about your mother's kind of history with the ranch tell tell me about her uh working working at the ranch and then uh, tell me potentially what the water supply may or may not have, have had to do with your mother passing away. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, um, that's certainly an important part of the story because, um, you know, if, if we just stopped here and, and nothing had happened to my mother, like, this would still be a major concern. Like, there is a ranch at stake. Like, like it, it would still be absolutely a large concern. But it, it's it'd a, be money. It, you, it'd, be, you, it'd, be, it'd be a business concern. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, it'd be money. It'd be a big lawsuit with Chevron and, and it, just yeah, money. It's, it's, it's a story. You, you're, you can write it out yourself. You, you can see how that would have gone. But um, with, with the death of my mother, yeah, that, that, that's made it uh, certainly more personal. Uh, with the death of my mother, that's made it certainly more personal. Um, so my, my mother, Mary Williams, um, she's the side of the family that I come by West Texas ranching. Um, she's a native of Monahans. Her mother's a native of Monahans. Um, my great grandfather is the one that established this ranch. He was a cow buyer at the Fort Worth stockyards in, in the early 19 teens. And he saw that the best cattle were coming from the Sandhill country of West Texas. And so he found a, a banker in Fort Worth to stake him and, he came out here to near Monahans and started putting together a, a cow ranch in the in the deep sand, and so that's um, you know some of our ancestral family land that we've owned you know for 110 years. Like we we got here in 1914 or so, and and you know somebody checked my history, but I think the Santa Rita number one was 1921. So we beat oil to the Permian Basin by seven years. Like we were here before the oil industry got here, and then. In 100 years, in 300 years, in 500 years, the oil industry will be long gone, and it'll be like the whale oil industry, and we'll still be ranching in the Permian Basin. So, um, you know, that's, I think you're getting a little piece of the story of why this is important. This isn't just a short-term play for us. This is the land. So, so my mother, Mary Watt, born in Monahans, Mary Williams Watt, Williams is our, our family name here, um, grew up out here, uh, absolutely loves it here. Um, and um, absolutely loves it here. I, I keep talking about it in the present tense. No, yeah. nah, I My, think I think when we were we were DMing the thing that hit me after reading your mother's obituary and DMing, not knowing you. Literally, I only know you through the DMs. I think I said this to you because 
you said something about the present tense and I was like, yeah, your mom's still alive. Cause, uh, a lot of the, the spirit yep. and the spunk and, uh, and kind of the beauty I read in that obituary about your mom, I see in you. Yeah. And in, in my, my family, we've, we're, we're weirdly like matriarchal. Like my grandmother was raised as an only child, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the Permian basin and born in the twenties, like, and she, everyone loves their grandmother and talks about how nice they are. My grandmother was mean as a rattlesnake. <laughs> my mother, um, she ran our family. Like I, I have the only, my, and my dad was no slouch. He was a very accomplished oil and gas attorney, um, you know, very successful in his own right. But my mother ran the family. She ran the checkbook. She drove on road trips. Like she made all the big decisions. Like I, we have kind of a matriarchal strain and she ran the ranch. She, she was in charge of running the ranch while he, did his day job as an attorney. So I, I grew up in, in Houston, Texas, um, because my dad was an attorney there. Um, and once we bought this, the main side division in 1994 or so, um, we started coming out here, um, all the time when we were in Houston, I was essentially in Houston for the school year. And then I'd be out in West Texas for Christmas, spring break, summer, everything else. In hindsight, um, I, I could, I can see what happened. Like my parents, bought more ranch than they could afford. And so they were, um, you know, they were, they were ranch poor. And so that's why all of our vacations were to Monahan's, Texas. But, um, you know, I, I loved it. I spent the, the best part of my childhood out here and, and really my favorite memories of my family are out here. And, it, and again, I don't want to, I don't want this to be called a vacation house because, um, it's more of a, of a split time home, like part of the year we're in Houston and part of the year when we're in West Texas. And she was, my mother was um, in great health, you know, worked out great, ate great, 100%, just healthy as a mule. Um, and then in spring of 2018, she started to say, hey, I'm kind of, my back's hurting and I'm not feeling good. I was in March. And then she started getting, getting going to different doctors. And, you know, if you're 66 years old, 67 years old, um, and your back hurts, like cancer is not the first diagnosis, but she went around and went around and got more tests and finally got diagnosed with an extremely rare cancer called adrenocortical carcinoma. And it's a cancer of the um, adrenal gland on the kidney. And that's important. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. And it is about as bad. I mean, all cancer is bad, but that is like, you, you don't survive that cancer. Like there is no, there is no recovery. It's can you be alive in two years? And it sure enough, like she was damn near dead by May, uh, 60 days later and went through chemo and had surgery and it was miserable and kind of came back and was doing good. And, you know, had, we were starting to think like, maybe she's going to beat this. She's going to be beat the odds. And then early November started downhill and was dead by Christmas Eve. Um, just horrific. Um, and I got to take care of her the whole time. So, um, you know, that, that's a horrific story under any circumstances, but you know, I was the one literally by her bedside, um, and when things, you know, at, at the end, like um, having a vacuum and, and siphoning spit out of her throat because she couldn't swallow and all the you know, horrific things that go with with a death in progress. So um, that it it was it was crushing. It, it pretty much destroyed our family. My dad had had some heart problems after this. He never he never came back. He just started drinking heavily and he was dead a year later. Um, but he he died of a broken heart. So losing losing my mother, like we lost the the family right there. Like that was absolutely terrible. And this cancer, adrenocortical carcinoma, 
if you if you look it up online, it's it's about a one in a million occurrence across the U.S. Um, half those cases are you know the genetic disorders where you get like all cancers and you just your body like makes cancer everywhere. And so once you cut out those genetic disorders for people that are otherwise healthy, it's a one in two million cancer, give or take. And so I was just like, wow, you know, like just you know the the universe wasn't wasn't good to us like lightning hit and it and it didn't go well and you know I was, I was really sad and and we're gonna move past it dovetailing back into the chevron story as we this spring have started to find more leaks and more spills and more casing collapses and um after the freeze um uh, some of our cottonwoods, we plant a cottonwood near every watering on the western side because that provides it shade and you lose less water to evaporation. Our cottonwoods, uh, a couple of them were looking real kind of sickly. Um, and I was like, oh, it was the freeze. It, it just got them and they, they're kind of recovering. But but all the other cottonwoods have come back that are further away from you know the area where this, this well has blown out and where we've had other leaks and everything. And so as I started to look at those cottonwoods and see how sickly they were, I started to get that thought in my head of, hey, maybe, no, that's like crazy. Like maybe, maybe, maybe something in our water supply did this to my mom. We we know for a fact that we have had hydrocarbons in our house water supply before in 2002. Um, we we don't really have an idea what's in them now. Like we don't get our well water tested. We never thought we needed to. Um, like maybe something's up. And then um, you know, kind of thinking that and kind of suspicious. And then last Thursday, when this well bubbled up, given the location it is near the waterings with the bad cottonwoods, uh, near where it is relative to the house, I was like, holy shit, like, this has absolutely been in our water supply, and absolutely, this is what led to my mom's cancer. Like, I, I don't make a, a murder allegation lightly, especially a murder allegation against, you know, the the second largest oil company in the entire United States, but like... I am confident now that Chevron murdered Mary Williams Watt. And like, I am furious. Like what, what would you do if, if, if a major oil company through a combination of arrogance and neglect, like killed your most important family member? Like, like how do you, how do you respond to that? Like, like I, I, I don't even, I don't even know. Um, and that's, that's where I've been like a little militant about like, I am not accepting a penny from Chevron until um, we get this figured out. And if I ever settle with them and I ever get paid off, like I'm going to make it damn public on what I think my soul is worth. Like I'm going to let the world know what Ashley Watt will sell her soul for. So, um, it's, it's been, it's been rough. I want to expand on one other thing. The, the reason that this well is particularly dangerous, this Estes 24, which is blowing out is Water aquifers have a flow to them. They move in a, they're like a river. They move in a direction over time. It's really slow. It's on the order of, you know, feet per day. Um, they're not racing underwater, but they move. And where we are, they generally move north to south because um, about five miles south of our southern gate is the Pecos River. So the aquifer kind of generally flows towards the Pecos River. This well that has now come to the surface and been leaching brine for God knows how long, unbeknownst to any of us, it is at the northernmost tip of our ranch, directly in a northerly line with multiple water wells, including the one that serves my house. So anything that comes out of the Estes 24, you know, even if it's just that little 
couple of gallons a minute, a couple of barrels an hour, you know, whatever it is, like that amount, it's not the flow that's getting us. It's not that it's some, you know, absolute gusher. It's that flow has been going on for quite some time. No one's noticed, and it has been slowly but steadily marching towards my house. And every drop of water that I pull out of my wells suctions it a little bit closer to me. So it's it's almost like a psychological torture because, like, I'll be at this well all day. You know, they're trying to figure out how to fix it. The, the metal's shot to shit, so they, they're, it's literally difficult to latch anything onto. I go home. I'm tired. I'm sweaty. I, sell, I smell like an oil field site. And I hop in the shower and turn on hot water. And then I have to look at that water and realize that's the same water and the same water table um, that's probably already killed my mother. And, you know, what's it doing to me right now? And, and we've gotten the preliminary test back on the produced water. It's, it's loaded with benzene, way past the um, allowable limit. Benzene is an aromatic. It, it evaporates in the air, especially when it's hot. So I'm sitting there in a hot shower, um, very potentially just aromating benzene all into my bathroom. Like, there, there is no, no break. Like, like, this week has been – I've slept about four hours in five days. Like, it is – just the engineering problem and just everything else would be a huge problem and absolutely crushing. But the fact that I go back and live in it, you know, unbelievable. And I, I said something about this. I, I said it on site. Um, you know, like, do you know how, like what a mind fuck it is to have to go back from the site every day and bathe in the water that's 50 feet underneath it. And one of Chevron's attorneys, a guy from cotton Bledsoe, made a snide remark about like, Oh, well, you know, you can go have some fun in Monahan's. And I, I went off on him. I was like, fuck you, man. Like, read the fucking room. You already killed my mother and you're making jokes about my water that I'm still living in? Like, show some fucking respect. So it, it, it's, it's a, it's, it was a tense sight earlier this week. It was definitely a tense sight. Well, and I'm not an engineer, a geologist. You know, as my partners at Kane used to say, I'm a dub, dumb finance guy. But at the end of the day, if the water is spewing out at the surface, 20 minutes before it was spewing out of the surface, it was going into the ground at 52 feet, you know, 51 feet, 50 feet, etc. So, I mean, I've got to believe leaks were happening before it just had the surface expression, right? Absolutely. And, and this water, because it's got so much brine in it, it's literally really heavy. Um, and so that's why like, you know, when you go to the Dead Sea, you like float really well because really briny water is heavier. So you, you float easier on top of it. So this water, you know, water is going to go down from gravity anyway. This water is going to be especially heavy and especially downward sinking, um, in trying to get to that aquifer. That's the concerning part is if there's, you know, just call it 200 plugged and abandoned wells, how many other ones? looked just fine at the surface there's no problem you know it's just a sleepy little pna and has 10 pound brine working its way up just saturating you know the the different layers at like you said 53 feet 52 feet and then eventually it'll get to the surface and it'll start saturating the surface and we'll see it there and we can come in and fix it but by that point the damage is done and and that's what i was going back to like if this was just a, a traditional pure blowout it would actually be better because it wouldn't sit there and you know, do all of its damage before it makes itself known. But at this point on these, like by the time we see them, the damage is done. And and I I literally do not know how 
you clean out a freshwater aquifer or if it's even possible. Uh, so I, I don't know if this can ever be undone. And one more thing about, about my mother that I, I didn't mention earlier, um, you know, after she passed away, she was, she was cremated and I brought her ashes out and these sand hills are, it's my favorite place in the world. Like of all the land and all the ranches, the sand hills at the northern part of the Antina main side are my favorite place and our family's favorite place. And so I scattered her ashes there. And, you know, fate has a cruel sense of humor. That is exactly where we're having all these problems with um, PNAs popping and well bores collapsing and water wells being contaminated are all literally underneath the area where I scattered her ashes. So just it's horrific, horrific. What's the game plan right now? What is Chevron doing? What do you want Chevron to do? And and ultimately, is there a quote-unquote favorable resolution to this in your eyes? I, I want to compliment Chevron, um, which may not be what people are expecting. Um, the Chevron of the last 24 hours, um, and this is Friday and Saturday, um, has been a completely different Chevron than the Chevron of the earlier half of this week. The Chevron of the earlier half of this week was as boneheaded on the response to this as you could have been. They first sent out um, the landman who had been lying to me um, and just been a complete prick and sent him on site. And so I just kicked him out right away. I said, I don't want, I don't want to fucking deal with you. I'm dealing with a well blowing out. I'm having my worst fears confirmed with my mother. Like, get this asshole out of here. After that, they then sent out, um, I got a, a, a nice young man came out and introduced himself as my point of contact at Chevron. I was like, okay, great. I finally have someone I can talk to and hear what's going on. And so I was like, you know, what, what do you do in the operations department? And he's like, um, I'm in the, the security group. And I was like, you're in the security group? And he's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm here to keep things safe. I was like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. And then they bring out, um, you know, their head of security out here, who's um, become a little bit Twitter famous. I won't, I won't say his name, but if you've been following the story, you'll know who he is. And it, it dawned on me then that Chevron is now viewing me not as, okay, this is a landowner. We need to keep her in the loop. We need to let her know what's going on. But we need to control this person. Like, we need to keep this person away from us and, con and control her because she's getting ahead of the narrative. Um, and we don't want her you know, blasting our dirty laundry in public, which I was, I was angry at, but I could have, I could have dealt with if it was just security guards on site. I then met a couple of their engineers at the Southern PNA bus busted site, which is five miles South of this. Um, and sure enough, that security guy was like wandering around down there. Like it just ran into him in a pickup truck. So Chevron starts sending private security to go through my ranch you know, unescorted, just looking around. Like I, I compared that just in a very rough analogy to be like, if there was a sewer leak in your front yard and you know, the, the Midland public works was there trying to fix it. Like that's an unfortunate situation, but Hey, they're trying to fix it. And then you go in your bathroom and there's a Midland police officer, like going through your medicine cabinet. It'd be like, what the fuck dude? Like why, why are you here? Like, um, so Chevron was just, completely boneheaded. You know, they tried to pitch those guys to safety for a few days. And then it was like, they're definitely not safety. They're security. They're, they already have other safety guys. Um, they, they, you know, didn't want to talk to us except their attorneys. Like they were it just, everyone on the site was super tense and didn't want to say anything. And so I, I had to flat out tell them, I was like, look, I am, 
if I just wanted to sue you and get money, like I could do that. And that's, you know, whatever, that is not the resolution I want. Like, like, and I need someone to work with me and tell me what's going on. And, and of all people, I want to, there's a, a guy at Chevron and I won't say his name, but he's an engineer of all, all things. And he has been the first person that's like reasonable to deal with. And we have started to treat each other like human beings and, um, have actually developed, you know, a, a rebuilt a little bit of trust, which has just been shot over 25 years. Chevron has become, you know, I, I told them, I was like, we have 600 head of cattle right now and I am not sure they can drink this water. And even more so I can't sell them because they might be contaminated with it. Um, and so we are, we are moving them to another division that is an operational challenge. We're not, we're not cut out for, we never move 600 cattle at a time. Um, we have to sit, completely step the other place in a different way. It's not meant to be run like this. We're some cattle are just not going to survive the trip. Um, and at first Chevron was basically like, well, that sounds like a big problem for you. It's like, fuck you. Like the whole reason we're doing this is now our, all of our water supply is, is in doubt. They finally come around, started to, you know, get us stuff for, for cattle and, and to try to make that work. But they're just, they're not stuff to do it. Like, like when you hire cowboys, when you hire day hands out here, like day hands don't work on 90 day payables. Like you got to pay those guys either in cash or check right there. And Chevron's not cut out to do that. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm footing the bill right now for moving my own cattle to another place um, because of Chevron's error. And, and Chevron says, oh, we'll pay you back. But you know what? Fuck you, Chevron. Like, your money's not good for me. Like, I, and I don't want to be even seen as taking a dollar from you because I, I do not want anyone, anyone to look at this story and be like, oh, a- Ashley Watts trying to shake down Chevron for cash. Like, I don't, I don't want it. Like, I mean, and this sounds like something snotty and champagne problems, but like, what would more cash do for me? It would, it would create more problems in my life. Like my, I am one of those rare people that am absolutely living their dream. Like all I want to do in my life is live on a West Texas cattle ranch and run a good sized cattle operation. And I am incredibly fortunate that I have that. I'm, I'm happy. My, you know, I love my, I love my life. I love my quality of life and everything. Like, you know, say, say I got a hundred million dollars from Chevron. Like, what would I do with a fucking hundred million dollars? I don't want anything. Um, well, and so, I'll say this, you and I have never met. This is the first time we've ever talked this afternoon, but that has been abundantly clear in our discussion. I mean, no one talks yeah. about, uh, coming onto the land in 1914 and about their grandfather and about their grandmother and great about grandfather. Their, yeah. Great grandfather. And, their grandmother and their mother and running the business and all that, unless you have a passion for it. Cause yeah. I guarantee you, if you wanted money, you'd be saying a bunch of other shit to set the trap on Chevron. And I haven't heard an ounce of that. Yeah. And I, you asked earlier, you know, how does this end? And, and that's, you know, what's the resolution? And, and that's a question I've been asking myself. Um, Cause I, I don't know if this is physically possible to clean up. Um, I think at a minimum, they're going to have to, I guess, pump out the aquifers. All, there's water testing ongoing. You know, we're trying to figure out the extent of the spills and where it is. And, and those water tests, the scary part is those water tests, they may all come back. Hey, everything's clean. Everything's good. The scary part is what I told you earlier is even if everything is good now, this spill, which we can clearly see, has clearly put a ton of bad stuff in the water table and it's headed towards all the other wells. So even if everything is perfectly a okay, good, 
we literally have a tidal wave of toxic shit headed towards our water system. So we're, it's just, it's not usable right now. I don't know if Chevron can, can clean up this ranch. Um, I, I think they're going to have to re-P&A at least 200 wells, if you know, possibly more. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be an absolute disaster. I think in under normal circumstances and with you know any other landowner, I think at this point, Chevron would start pulling out their checkbook just to buy the ranch. But you know, my my mother's ashes are scattered on this ranch. Like I grew up out here. Like my fondest memories of my family are out here. Like this ranch isn't for sale at any price. Like, and going back to like what, what what would I do with that money? Like it doesn't bring my mom back. It, you know, I'm I already have a, a ranch in West Texas. Like, I I don't know. Like like money is literally doesn't solve this problem. What I have asked, and and it may come across as like a joke or something, but I want Mike Worth to come out here and have dinner with me at my dining room table. Um, and this isn't a trap. This isn't, you know, I'm going to secretly record it and gotcha or have attorneys or I'm not even, I'm not even going to yell at him. And, and I, I don't know Mike Worth and I don't know anything about him. I'm pretty sure he wasn't the one P&Aing Wells in the Permian in 1995. If he was like, well, then it's a different conversation. But I want Mike Worth to come out here and see what this looks like and see what my what my home looks like and see what's happened. Um, and I want to try to, to figure out a way forward with him. I, I think there is still a chance that we can, can use this as an example for, Hey, accidents happen, really bad things happen, but you know, we as an industry can be trusted to do the right thing and work with it and everything like that. I, I think there's a little window when, the narrative has gotten big enough that clearly people have noticed. I'm talking to you right now, but it's not quite a national narrative yet that maybe, maybe we can salvage this, you know, together as an industry. And and it would take, and the reason I'm saying Mike worth is if I tell, if I talk to anyone else at Chevron, they're going to say, I have to check with the boss. So, you know, this is no pride of, I only talk to the CEO, but I literally need the person that has ultimate ex- executive authority on that company to discuss this. If, if we don't figure something out, and we can't figure out a way forward that makes sense for, you know, the Antina Ranch and all other ranchers across the Permian and any other oil fields across the U.S., and that doesn't make sense for Chevron and any other operator in the entire oil and gas industry, then we are going to go to war with each other and air our dirty laundry in front of everyone, in front of national news, in front of people that don't like the oil industry. Like, the important thing to remember here is I'm not some East Coast, you know, super liberal, Tesla-driving um biden voter or something like i'm a person that liked and still likes still considers themselves in the camp of like the u.s oil industry um like i i am an ally and i'm having these problems and i think i think any you know any operator out here any person at any oil company and regardless of what your role is like if your water was poisoned and it had killed your mother and you were probably going to lose your entire cattle operation like I, I don't think anyone would be okay with that. If, if you are, you're a psychopath. And so we've, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff on, on Twitter and people are like, well, that's just the way it is. And I've seen nastier shit and I'm sure you have, but that's not good. We shouldn't brag about that. We shouldn't brag that there's worse shit out there. We should try to make it better. Because if we can't do this right in the Permian Basin, in the beating heart of the oil and gas industry in the free world, like, then why should anyone else trust us at this point? Like if I, if this really 
breaks out and becomes a national conversation. Like if I lived in Colorado and I was a Colorado legislator and I looked at that and I was like, Hey, look, Texas, which is pro oil. Can't get this shit sorted out. Like we don't want this here. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame them. Like, frankly, like, so we have, we have got to figure this out um, and have a solution as an industry. And at this point, it's a, it's almost a joke of like, you know, just shitting on landowners. Like, yes, the, you know, the, the minerals are the dominant state, like every landman, I swear that's the only thing they teach them. Um, and that's true. And that, that means, you know, the lessee and the operator can get to the minerals. That doesn't mean that you can just absolutely destroy the surface. It doesn't mean you can pollute the aquifers. It doesn't mean you can ruin land. And it doesn't mean you can kill people. Like, we we got to figure out a new paradigm here um, because this isn't working, what we have now. It's, it's interesting that you say that because, and I don't want to repeat the the big story we had a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, but just there was a, a brouhaha about a guest I had on the podcast, a folk singer who had, I felt was middle of the road type person who had said some things in front of a subcommittee of Congress that some people on Twitter took offense to as, you know, giving sound bites to the enemy, aiding and abetting the, the enemy. So this whole thought process behind you know, the narrative, how do you defend the industry uh, has been at the forefront of my mind for the for the last couple of weeks. And a discussion I had, because I feel like, you know, definitely the anti-oil and gas forces have won the narrative over the last 20 or 30 years. We're destroying the planet, etc. I had that discussion with my children who are 18, 15 and 14 and something I didn't appreciate um, because I just thought Greta got up and Al Gore got up and various folks said we're putting CO2 in the air and global warming and um, we're going to heat the planet up and, and destroy planet Earth. I thought that narrative had taken hold, scared the kids. That's why they were rallying around it. My kids brought up. And I almost want to say it's a more significant factor than CO2 emissions is the behavior of the industry to date. Things like they knew about global warming and they covered it up, the Valdez spill, etc. And so hearing this story, uh, I think you're exactly right. It's very, very timely. And I've been saying on Twitter, and I'll say it to you now, and I, I recorded a podcast um, a couple of days ago with Mark Mills, and we talked about advocacy and how do you say it. And I wanted to talk less about what the narrative is and more just how do we measure it and the like. But what was really interesting about it is, one, oil and gas has done a lot of good stuff, but it's done a lot of bad stuff. And it's been so opaque about the bad stuff that it's done that it's destroyed any of the goodwill for the good things we've done. And so my hope in terms of with your situation is there's a, a human level that I hear the passion you have for this ranch, and I want you to be able to live the rest of your life on your ranch running cattle. Um, and then from the industry point of view, because I am pro oil and gas, I spent my career in it. I want Chevron to do the right thing. 
I want Chevron to acknowledge that mistakes were made. I want them to be transparent about it. And at the end of the day, I do think if they do that, they have credibility with the folks in Colorado. They have credibility with the middle ground here in America of, to your point, accidents happen, let's fix it, let's do the right thing. And that's that's the real worry I had when I saw the red bucket is, oh my gosh, we're doing it again. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think... I think that narrative, like if, if Chevron would have been responsive, you know, to, to when I told them, hey, you spilled a bunch of brine water, you need to fix it, you know, back in December, if they would have been like, oh, hey, you know, sorry, we, we screwed up and, and they cleaned it up. And then this would have happened. I would have had some trust that like, okay, I can call Chevron. I can say, hey, there's there's been an accident. I know they're going to do the right thing. I know they're going to clean it up. But all I had seen up to this point is every time I had called them, you know, clearly the attorneys are saying, don't say anything. And so I had no faith in them doing the right thing. And, and frankly, they wouldn't ha- have unless I got on Twitter and absolutely started airing their dirty laundry to God and everyone. So, you know, I, I think I've, I've always thought, you know, I, I feel like making a lawyer joke's cheap, but like attorneys are, attorneys are always the no people. They will always say no. But attorneys are only just advisors. Like if you are a, a business decision maker, you don't have to listen to your attorney. They're going to tell you, the best course of action to you know prevail in a lawsuit if it happens, which that's a good concern. But if you just treat people the right way, you can head that lawsuit off at the pass. Like I, I think people inherently have an understanding of you know, accidents happen, we're gonna make it right, but accidents happen, we're gonna shut up and not do anything. Well then that at that point, like fuck you. I'm just I'm coming after you. Like I'm not gonna deal with your shit. Well, you know, they ran a my dad's a doctor and uh, they ran a study, and I forget exactly which university did it, but they ran a study of what doctors get sued for and why. And 90% of the time, doctors that get sued, it's 100% because of their bedside manner. There are doctors that made horrific mistakes, but had really good bedside manners, and they never got sued. And there are doctors that are arrogant pricks, that did everything exactly textbook correctly and they wind up getting sued. And I, I, I'm going to bastardize a story here just because I want to protect details, but I know of a situation where uh, a child was actually killed on a well site. It was not the accident of the oil and gas company. Um, Fences were jumped and, and the like. And the CEO, to his credit, went immediately to the family's house and wrote him a $100,000 check and said, and I know the CEO and I know his manner, so I know this is how it was delivered, said, look, if you want to sue me, sue us. This is not attempting to buy you out of a lawsuit. This is also not trying to replace your child. You know, I have three, you know, I have multiple children myself and I can't imagine the horror you're going through. This is us acknowledging that something really bad happened to you. And we are trying to be helpful uh, here. And we can't imagine what you're going through. And uh, the lawyers were up in arms that he did it. But at the end of the at the end of the day, it was it was the right thing to do. It was the right approach to take. And the beauty of it 
is the CEO came back and said, I don't care if that makes it more likely that we get sued and more likely that we have a big judgment against us. I don't want to live in a world where I can't act like that, where I can't see suffering and at least try to do something to, to help. So I, I hope Chevron does the right thing here. Yeah. I, I, can, I can understand a little bit the lower levels of Chevron dealing with landowners and having issues and being hassled and the like. But now that it's been elevated to a point where they're taking it seriously, hopefully better judgment will will reign on their side. And, and I don't know at this point, this narrative may already be out of control. I, I don't know if it's salvageable, but if it is, you know, Mike Worth and I need to talk soon. And, and, and if the other, other alternative is true that, you know, Chevron's a giant company and so, you know, killing one dumb rancher on West Texas doesn't matter to them, then they shouldn't exist. Like, like a company like that, you know, they, they have lost their social license to operate at that point. You've had to adjust scale and even shrink back your office before. Maybe you were at a big established company or maybe at a public company with ample resources, but this time you're a startup. The game's changed, but hey, the good news? You have a clean slate to do things differently. The not so good news? Your GNA budget is limited and everyone in your organization wears multiple hats. So what do you do? You hire EAG, one source. The experts in taking back office processes to the next level by saving companies real dollars, covering IT, accounting, land, and production functions, and easily integrating your asset as the team behind your team. Check them out at www.eagonesource.com. That is the number one for the number one back office and IT outsourcing group in the game. EAG One Source. Next topic the Texas Railroad Commission. The Texas Railroad Commission at this point is nothing more than a government funded fig leaf for the entire oil and gas industry. Like, if you go look through just let's just say the Railroad Commission's Twitter feed, if I blurred out you know who was posting it you would think it was some trade organization for oil and gas like they are rah rah oil and gas all the time and they have completely abandoned their responsibility to regulate the industry at this point all of the regulations are just ghost written by big oil by the chevrons by the exxons of the world and put into place. And then that allows Chevron to say, hey, look, you know, we plugged this thing to Railroad Commission standards. Like we did it the right way. Like, you know, you can't sue us. Like we cleaned this up to Railroad Commission standards. But the Railroad Commission standards, I, I would say they're the bare minimum, but they're not even the minimum at this point. Like like Railroad Commission standards are wells coming unplugged. Like Railroad Commission standards, if you spill a ton of crude on the ground and it's just soaking into the soil and everything, you can literally just bring in some fresh dirt like mix it up to dilute it a little bit and just leave it in place. Um, like it is, the Rover Commission standards are an absolute joke. But like they have a provision for aquifers. Like if, if an oil company has screwed up your aquifer, the Rover Commission can make them install like a RO unit sort of thing um, and operate it to give you good water. But 
they can only make them do it for 30 years. So say Chevron installs, you know, does the regular railroad commission thing and installs a RO unit for 30 years. Well, what do I do when I'm 65? I'm 35 right now. Like, what do I drink when I'm 66? What do my cattle drink? Like 30 years doesn't do shit for me if the aquifer is, is eternally destroyed. Um, and, and I think, I think the railroad commission, like this can best be seen as, you know, two days ago as this starts to get some publicity and starts to blow up on Twitter and all that. Like, the River Commission lawyers up against the landowners, not against the operator. Like we got a cease and desist, like do not speak to our personnel on site, but they can speak to the Chevron personnel all day. Um, but like they literally, the River Commission at this point is more concerned with itself looking bad than it is with actually protecting the citizens of Texas and regulating the oil and gas industry. The River Commission inspectors on the ground great they are hardworking. they want to do what's best um like they intend to make things better but and this is what surprised me they don't really have any power like the the operators treat the railroad commission i thought they would treat them like oh the railroad commission told us to do it we got to do it the operators treat the railroad commission like you know your compliance at work (laughs) like if compliance is like you have to do your annual sexual assault training like that's not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to hop to it or I'm going to get in a ton of trouble. It's like, all right, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Like, there is no one at this point that can actually make the industry move. Um, and I've, you know, I've been, for this past few months, I've been filing Railroad Commission complaints. And the whole Railroad Commission complaint process, it's, you know, I file a complaint. They then have to go look at it. And they say, yes, you know, you're correct. There's actually a crude spill over here. Like, great. I, I knew that. And then they send a strongly worded letter to the operator a few weeks later and it says, we've seen that crude spill and we're really serious and we're going to inspect it again, but we're not going to look at it for 30 days, but you really better be back there in 30 days. And then they'll go back and look. And if it's not cleaned up, they'll be like, all right, now we're super serious. You better clean up this spill. And the operator the whole time is like, I, I don't care. Like you almost certainly will not do anything to me. So the Railroad Commission, it's toothless. It's just become, it's become a, um, just a, a a charade for the industry like I, and i don't know how we fix it like that is a that is not like a simple here's a simple fix but like i i don't think that it, that organization is salvageable i think you know the texas legislature needs to take a really hard look at this um going back to our credibility argument you know if, if us as texans aren't going to actually regulate our oil and gas industry then who is um and completely redo every railroad commission standard rule process organization from the bottom up what i i know there's going to be operators that say well well you know if, if we redid the pna obligations and made it tougher like that's going to cost us more money and like yes it will cost you more money to pna a well but if the alternative is any well you pna comes unplugged in the next 25 to 50 years then it should cost you more money. Like that well wasn't worth drilling if it's going to create a disaster like this. Like if, if every well turns into this when it dies, like we should not drill any more wells. And, and we need to be thinking about PNAs, not just from, you know, what's it going to look like in 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 100 years. We need to be thinking, what's this plug look like in 200 years, in 300 years? Because in 300 years, I can tell you that that water aquifer will look functionally the same assuming the pnas don't blow um i can tell you probably the subsurface looks similar so you know how how is this story different than what we're going to see 
all over the place in 300 years if we don't figure out how to properly plug and abandon a well in a reputable manner. And, and if that costs more money, like, good. Like, good. Like, if, if that, I mean, and, and if you if you disagree with that, like, again, you're, you're kind of a psychopath. Like, you're putting literal people's lives in front of the profits of your company. I, I think your your point of exactly not how to how to fix it is is kind of where I am too. I've historically always been a libertarian, and unfortunately, where the libertarian argument breaks down, and I have to admit this is libertarians work in a world where people have rights and they have responsibilities. They understand both sides of the coin, and they operate accordingly. And unfortunately. When people don't operate that way, we get into this mess of, okay, we need regulators, and then we wind up not having enough regulators at the state level that it gets federalized, and you get into overreach, and I can guarantee that never works out being a, a very good solution either. So I think uh, yeah. I think all of us killing some brain cells on how to do this better is, is probably a good thing, and hopefully that comes out of this uh, this horrible situation. Yeah, and, and I'm with you on the kind of the general libertarian mindset and generally regulation's bad and, and I absolutely agree. And if, if Chevron owned the minerals, the surface, and they were the operator and they had this well blowout and they screwed up the water system forever, like, well that sucks, but you know, it's theirs and at least they know what's in it and you know, they made their own bed, so good on them. The the problem here is you know, a, an operator screw up and an operator cutting corners and in the name of, you know, gaining a little bit of efficiency, like that doesn't kill operators, that kills landowners. Like that's where that breaks down. And and I am an absolute Texan to the core. I'm like, I'm borderline a Texas nationalist. Like I, I think we are the finest place on earth. And I'm not going to lie, the past week has shaken my pride in Texas to the core. And like, at this point, if you told me the only way to fix the railroad commission was have the EPA come and take care of it, like, you know what? If if that's what it takes, if it takes the feds, if we can't if we can't sort out our own industry and we have to call Washington to do it, then shit, then we don't deserve to do it. Like, and that's where we are right now. Like, we as an industry, and I'm including our regulator, the railroad commission, in it, suck. Like, we absolutely suck. We have just we've gotten so used to fighting all the environmentalists and, and we've now we view that anyone that says anything against oil and gas is has ulterior motives and they're in favor of solar and anything like no i don't have those motives i just don't want to die by drinking my water like that seems like a, a reasonable request of my regulator and right now they can't get that to me and to the extent we uh we can't do that we're handing the argument to the other side and I've gotten on Absolutely. my I've gotten on my soapbox and I've gotten criticized for it, but you know, stupidest thing we ever did over the last twenty years in the business is not say what was in frac fluid because I mean that was actually we were doing it for competitive purposes that our frac fluids better than others. No, it's sand and water, and we handed the argument to it. It is exponentially worse when we do something bad and then try to cover it up. I mean, frac fluid was covering up something that wasn't bad because of competitive purposes. Trashing somebody's ranch and not fixing it and doing the right thing, millions times worse. And it, and it, and it, it causes the reasonable person 
sitting there watching TV who has air conditioning in their house powered by natural gas to say, okay, maybe there's something to what these environmentalists are saying. I, I agree. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. The question that we have to ask is like, how does an oil field die? Because even if, even if the oil industry is going to be around for a lot longer, and, and I think that's true, and I suspect you think that's true, and probably most of your listeners do, um, individual oil fields are, are eventually going to die off. You know, these, these wells out here were drilled in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and the ones that are still active, if they're making a barrel or two per day, I, I'd be shocked. But they're, they're cheaper to keep running than they are to properly P&A. And so operators have every incentive to not P&A their field and, in fact, just keep kind of rolling it down to smaller and smaller and smaller fish as it goes on rather than do the right steps to you know, make sure that this, this environmental liability, not a financial liability, but environmental liability, is ultimately disposed of uh, properly. And so what, what you end up having on this, and we're, we're fortunate in this situation, we're fortunate this is Chevron. For as shitty and boneheaded as they have been, you know, they are there. And now that Chevron is focused on it, you know, they have called in an army to go out there and try to fix this problem. So, so kudos to them on that. Like, what if this well that bubbled to the surface was P&A'd by, you know, in 1984 by Jim Bob's production company? which is long since defunct. Jim Bob's not even alive anymore. And that was dumping brine water everywhere. Like I'd be calling the railroad commission and the railroad commission would be saying, you know, Hey, we'll try to get a plugging group out there in 12 to 18 months. Like we are really screwed when this old infrastructure dies and you know, the people that put it in place aren't here on, on this, you know, specific example, we're actually kind of fortunate that there is one chain of custody from Gulf oil to present day you know, from 1924, that's all the same person. Because if this would have happened even on a field that had traded hands a few times, you'd be having operators pointing fingers at each other saying, well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. Like, this guy screwed it up because no one wants to step in and take liability. So we really need to think that even if the oil industry is going, like, what are these fields going to look like as they deteriorate and fall off? And how do we make sure that operators are incented to do the right thing and plug them uh, the right way, and that we don't don't just roll this down to smaller and smaller and smaller balance sheets that are even less likely to be around. Like this is a very real concern, and the whole situation is set up like this. And if you look at the the railroad commission rules, they can even temporarily abandon a well, basically indefinitely. Like we have wells that have been um, that I've looked at that are labeled as temporarily abandoned that it's clear no one has touched them in 10 years. And so they just sit there. They're not plugged. They don't even have, you know, and not even that plugs are working. Like we're eating through plugs at this point. These don't even have plugs. They're just sitting there in those same, you know, subterranean zones being eaten on by the same brine and the same sulfur. And they don't even have anything to keep it back. Like what, what do we do about those? And like quite how? frankly, yeah. And quite frankly, the mineral owner, would just soon have it sit there temporarily abandoned too on the off chance that it starts producing, you know, yeah. or like, some technology like, comes along that allows them to do something with it. Yeah. Or they find, you know, the, the Wolf Camp Z underneath or something like, yeah, ab absolutely. Like our entire, and that's what I say when, you know, uh, when I say that we need to completely rewrite the railroad commission regulations from the ground up and completely redo this. Like if you uh, just a very simple, like, 
economics 101 look at incentives just shows that there is every incentive for the world in the world for you know the operator to do things as cheaply as possible to these really low grade regulations uh to not plug it to keep it temporarily abandoned and if they do have to plug it just to sell it off to somebody else even if it's just for a dollar just that way it's not your responsibility and then they can go bankrupt and it'll never get abandoned and it's orphaned like like this is and, and like if you think this is like a worst case scenario and oh my god that would never happen this is going to happen more and more and more often like this one just happens to be the first wave it's it's uniquely old it's in a uniquely high overpressured underground zone um you know probably some uniquely bad chemistry that that you know made this come early and maybe the plug wasn't great or something but if you think like oh that well that won't happen to my wells like your wells are going to get eaten apart by these same forces it just will take longer and so we need to think like how do we incent people to do the right thing on plugging on temporarily abandoning wells on making sure that there is somebody to call if something goes wrong like we haven't done it like we are absolutely not prepared as an industry and this is going to be yeah, I've, I've gone on the record and said, like, the ESG initiative that will kill the oil and gas industry is not carbon dioxide. It's not global warming. It is this. It is old and abandoned oil shit just destroying the fields that it's sitting in. Like, that's what kills this industry. Now, is it just Chevron that's on uh, your ranch or are there other actors in play here? Chevron's certainly the the biggest and most well-known and so far most of the problems we know have been on their field um but but the other operators you know i don't know that we have a good operator right now like um there's a i'm gonna name and shame like the southern half of the ranch has a group called walsh and watts on it absolutely disgusting like the the sarah stogner photo that was going around like the stuffing box karen that is every one of their stuffing boxes is a lake of crude oil. Like I have fished so many dead animals out of their stuffing boxes because they refuse to do them. And the railroad commission is just on their ass continually. They don't care because they know the railroad commission's toothless. They won't clean up. Um, they're hard to deal with. They, they were the guys, you know, we were complaining to them and saying, Hey, you need to come look at this. Like, this is no good. And so they finally sent somebody out from the office and he's the, I don't know what he was, but like some mid-level manager, he shows up in a sparkling, shiny new Raptor pickup. I'm like, all right, let's go look at these. And it's down, you know, rough, beat up lease roads with mosquitoes on your side. And he's like, oh, well, I, I can't go down there. I can't scratch my pickup. And so, like, I, if there's if there's not a better story that illustrates like what the managers of these companies, how they're viewing these oil fields, like they're not even looking at them. Like it, it's just it's it's a disgrace. Walsh and Watts, you know, the Railroad Commission has finally begrudgingly forced them to start doing some cleanup. And I've gone out there and talked to their cleanup crews and their cleanup crews, you know, only speak Spanish and I, I speak pretty good Spanish. So I'll bring a burrito and talk them up. And they're like, Oh yeah, they told us just uh, go down a foot, you know, get this, all this black crude soaked soil out of here and put some fresh soil on top. So it looks good. So like, you know, that is literally the mindset is like pour some dirt on it. And I think I have a before and after picture um, somewhere on my Twitter of like, they had a bunch of flow lines that were, you know, spilled crude everywhere and nasty and I complained about it and they literally just came and dumped a backhoe of dirt on it and like, all right, that's good. Cleaned it up. Like just embarrassing. Like if you are proud to be in the same industry as Walsh and Watts, like do you have any pride in your job? And the, the midstream guys, 
Well, the midstream guys are are a mixed bag. Um, you know, we have a couple of big pipelines crossing us. Longhorn Pipeline crosses us. I have never had an issue with Longhorn Pipeline, and that's because Longhorn Pipeline carries, I think it's four hundred thousand barrels a day. It is you know a nationally important asset. It is incredibly valuable, and so you better believe that Longhorn Pipeline gets the maintenance done. You go look at the Targa has a bunch of the gathering lines. Targa does not give a shit. Like old steel gathering lines, a leak every 40 feet and leaking nasty, nasty gas. Like if you get close, you are drunk as shit on some sort of bad sulfur in two seconds and you get a pounding headache the rest of the day. Like in, in Targa to get them to do anything has just been absolutely yanking teeth to get them to clean up. Like, like, Anyone, the, the difference isn't, are there good operators and bad operators? And, and maybe there are, but I really haven't seen the good operators. It's, uh, is the asset worth spending money on or not? Like, I'm sure if you go to, you know, pick pick your big independence, you know, best horizontal wells in the Midland, I bet that pad site is pristine because that is worth spending money on. It's a good investment. They're going to do the right thing. Same thing on Longhorn Pipeline. Big, important pipeline, makes money. It's going to be taken care of. It's going to have maintenance. You start going to these little stripper assets, these you know sour crude gathering systems, these old vertical Chevron wells from the 50s and all that, they're, like maintenance is a four-letter word. Like No one's going to touch it because it doesn't make enough money. But they don't want to ultimately shut it down because that's more expensive than keeping it running. So we've created every incentive for, in the world to have shitty assets, not do anything to them, no one will call you out on it, and you're going to string that along as long as possible. Which, hey, you know, that's a business game. But the consequences are, when it does go wrong, it gets in the water supply, and it destroys a ranch, and it kills people. Like, like these aren't, the consequences here aren't, oh, my IRR is bad, or I have a few more plugging liabilities than I'd like on my balance sheet. Like, it's literally life or death consequences of maintaining these assets. Like the oil and gas industry for for everything that everyone does here, like, you know, it is a dangerous industry. We are dealing with um, you know, very even under circumstances where everything's going right, we're dealing with dangerous compounds under very high pressures. Like if if they start escaping from containment and escaping from well bores and escaping from tank batteries and escaping from pipelines, like that shit is going to screw everything that it touches up. Yeah, and you know the the weird um, thing that happened in the shale revolution actually helped the problem you're saying because if if a wolf camp zone had been found in your on your ranch, you would have had brand new equipment, brand new technology, brand new casing. And they would have immediately gotten rid of all the old pipelines and gathering lines in there because they can't take, you know, 10 million a day of gas or, you know, 2000 barrels a day of oil through all of that, you know. And so in a weird sort of way, the, the new plays got rid of a lot of, of these type issues. I think the other takeaway here is had Chevron and I had a good working relationship all along and, and they cleaned up spills that I called them about and, and you know, had, had at least some level of, of mutual respect and trust towards each other. When this well bubbled to the surface, I, I would not have flown off the handle 
right away and come after them and try to publicly execute them. Like, I, because I would have known I could call them. And so, it, you know, th these results are Chevron reaping what they've sowed over years and years of stomping all over a landowner. And at this point, you know, before this thing came, came up, I was already pissed. I was already furious. And when this bubbled to the surface, like, that was it. We were going nuclear. And I think that's what Chevron was puzzled. They showed up on site, and this landowner is absolutely apoplectic off the bat, and they couldn't quite figure out why. And I think over the past couple of days, they have gone back and figured out why I have been so angry at them. And, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Chevron, but I think there's starting to be a little bit of understanding on their part. And they're starting to see, like, you know what? We, uh, we fucked this one up pretty bad. Yeah, because I, th I think the important lessons to, to take from this, um, if we wanted to be somewhat apologetic to Chevron, and I'm not suggesting that we should, but, you know, potentially they were plugging the wells as they, as they should back in the day, as was current thinking. And we all know in every aspect of life, 10 and 20 years later, we look up and we go, ah, we should have done something different. Um, but the key is, you know, so they, they may have plugged things properly at the time. Maybe even other operators injecting water into the formation may have caused part of this and the like. Uh, so it may be, to your point, mistakes, but gosh, you know, it's just so important for us as the oil and gas business to watch it, to be responsible, to take ownership of the of the things we're doing, because one bad things really happen to you and your business and and your family, and two this is feeding the narrative to the to the other folks, uh, the other side of uh, the oil and gas debate, and uh, to the extent we're not doing that, you ruin it for the. I don't know what the exact percent is, but I think 95% of oil and gas or 90% of oil and gas production in America has done incredibly well, safety matters, responsible operators. But, you know, it just takes a few bad apples to sit there and ruin it for, for all of us with really dire consequences. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think this will be a good test. Like if Chevron really does want to, walk the walk and talk the talk and make this right. Like Mike Worth, get out here to the Permian and let's discuss this. Um, if Chevron wants to lawyer up and defend themselves and everything, then like, you know what? Let's tear them to pieces. Like Mike, you and I are going to be sitting at a cynic subpoena hearing at some point, And we're going to be having the same conversation. So I, I said this earlier this morning, like Mike Worth, we we're going to talk at some point. It's either going to be in the privacy of my dining room and we can, you know, figure out a way forward on this in the family for, for myself and for other landowners and, and try to maybe create a little bit of a new framework for how we can do this the right way. Or we can have a conversation in front of a very hostile Congress that really hates you and it won't be good for either of us. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what kind of character he has. Um, but, I, you know, so far, I'm, I'm not optimistic. Ashley, I'm really sorry about what you and your family have had to go through on this. And I do appreciate you coming on and, and telling your side of the story. I think it's an important story. And I think it's 
means a lot to our industry. And, and as you said, I hope Chevron does the right thing here because it could be as bad as it's been potentially constructive uh, for both Chevron and for our industry to step up and do the right thing. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you for, for having me today and, and, you know, let me, let me discuss this. And I don't think these things, they probably mostly get settled in a, um, you know, a conference room and, and never reach the light of day. And, and maybe some good can come out of this that it had to reach the light of day.